Our passage this morning is 1 Samuel 20, verses 1 through 42. That's page 243 if you'd like to follow along with the Bible there in your seats. And I said it last week and I'll repeat. We uh, do this as a tradition to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. It is not a command. And this morning's passage is long. Uh, and so um, if you are more likely to hear it and receive it sitting down than standing, we certainly understand. Uh, but we find it that even if I cannot bring attention to every word in the text this morning, that every word of the Lord is important. And so we will read the extent of the passage and ask that the Lord would bless it to our hearing and our understanding. Let's give attention now to 1 Samuel chapter 21 through 42. David has just escaped multiple attempts on his life. The threat's not over. Let's read. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is not a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to return to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I might not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you will Hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, go find the arrows. 
If I say to the boy, look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, and as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner by, sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave for me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for a clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore sin and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food in the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot shot an arrow before him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, who reigns over all the earth, who has so graciously come down to show yourself to us, to give us your word, because we would not know you as you truly are apart from you showing yourself to us. We pray, Lord, by your spirit, you would continue to show yourself to us as we consider your word, what you have done in history for your people. May we respond with worship, with repentance, with trust and obedience. This we pray 
seeking your help. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I've been noticing that even though we're just a few weeks into the fall, that some schools are already making plans for their fall plays and musicals. And so kids are trying out for their parts, uh, signing up so that they could be in the play. And you know that when they find out their part, that one of the first things they do is to evaluate their part. And how do they decide, do I have an important part? They get the script and start counting. How many lines do I have? Or, or how long am I going to be on stage? We, we tend to determine the importance of a figure in a play or in a drama or on TV on the basis of how many lines they have and how much time they spend in the spotlight. And the story of 1 Samuel is a story about God's rule over his people. And God showing his rule over his people by lifting up Samuel to announce judgment on Eli and his children who had misruled and misled his people. And God grants the request of the people to give them a king, a king like the other nations, And yet when Saul fails to be the right kind of king, God raises up and promises a new king. A new type of king. A king after his own heart in David. And so the main players in the story so far of 1 Samuel are, of course, Samuel and Saul and David. But in chapter 20, in our passage this morning, the spotlight shifts. Jonathan. He's given a bunch of time on the stage sharing the screen as it were with David and is given lots of lines so that our attention is drawn to Jonathan. Why? Is it because Jonathan is meant to be an example to us? A moral picture that we can say what's good about Jonathan so that we can be like Jonathan? Well, I think if we read the passage closely, we'll see there's a lot in Jonathan that we would want to follow, that we would want to mimic. But why would God put Jonathan forth? David comes to Jonathan in a time of need. Saul the king is after his life. And so he does what so many of us do in times of uncertainty or need. He turns to a friend. And in Jonathan's friendship, we see God's provision to David. So that while the passage focuses in on the friendship of David and Jonathan, what we understand the purpose of God in in showing us this friendship is to show us God's ongoing provision, His ongoing deliverance, his steadfast love and covenant commitment to David whom he has chosen to king to be king through his provision of a friend such as Jonathan through the gift of a true friend God's love and care is seen in verse 14 Jonathan makes a request to David He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die 
And do not cast off your steadfast love from my house forever. If he survives the encounter with Saul or the next time uh, they meet, he asks that David would continue to show steadfast love and, and love for his children after him. But, but notice how he describes that love. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Jonathan is the one making that request. But what we see in the passage is that Jonathan is doing that very thing that he's asking for. That as God raises up Jonathan in the life of David, God is displaying his steadfast love to David. It is a picture of God's steadfast love and provision for his people. And so friendship in this passage is for us not just something we enjoy, not, not just a social designation on Facebook or Instagram or wherever, not just a list of people that we can invite to important things in our lives, but friendship becomes a lens through which we can see the love of God. So this morning, as we consider the profound gift of true friendship, we see the opportunity in our own expressions of true and godly friendship to show the love and care of God, the steadfast covenant love of God to others. What do we see about such friendship from this passage? First, we see the devotion of true friendship, the cost of true friendship, and then the hope of true friendship. First of all, the devotion of true friendship. Throughout this passage, it reminds us that David and Jonathan aren't just mere acquaintances. They don't just know each other. But that they are committed and devoted to one another. Multiple times it uses the language of covenant. We read earlier that when Jonathan met David, he was already bound to him in love, and he formed a covenant that that is a binding declaration of commitment to David. And here again in the passage, there is renewed devotion. They again commit themselves in covenant agreements to care for one another. This is not a passing uh, enjoyment of one another. It is an opportunity to proclaim the devotion of God as they are devoted to one another. It's one thing to, to, to claim love, but here it's on display for us. That extent of their devotion to one another expresses itself in a, in a few ways. First of all, in the profound honesty. David says, what have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David, as far as he knows, has done nothing to warrant the anger and the unjust attacks on his life from Saul. But David, in his humility, comes to Jonathan because he believes that Jonathan might be the person who knows him and his actions well enough to expose the sin that he might have committed. To shine a light on the blind spot that he might have. And such is the nature of their their honesty that that though Jonathan can't understand this because he has been so used to his father sharing all this because 
because Saul kept his plans for the destruction of David quiet after that time that Jonathan convinced him not to seek his life the first time. But he then believes David. And believes that David's answer that God is, is allowed Saul to pursue him and that this is truly happening, that he's truly just a step between him and death, Jonathan entertains what David has said as honest instead of doubting it. There is profound honesty. But it's not just in hearing and in speaking. It's displayed in action. Verse 4. Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. The commitment is not just in in liking the person and saying, I enjoy you. But there is an expression of that love and that devotion through action. And he doesn't even know what that action will entail. And as David sets out this plan to test whether Saul's anger towards him is just a passing pleading thing or, or whether Saul has set his heart truly against David, Jonathan is opening himself up to whatever David will ask of him. The love of true friendship is not just felt, but it's manifested in action. And so they make this plan together and they carry it out. And through the course of the plan, as, as they sit through the meal, on, on, the, on the first meal of, this first, uh, of the new moon celebration, you had to be ritually clean. So Saul isn't upset necessarily the first night because it's possible David came into contact with a dead body or, or had sexual contact with his wife, and so he couldn't be ritually clean to enjoy that meal. But the meal on the second day did not require you to be ritually clean. And so no longer he can assume uh, an obvious reason for David's absence, and then that's when his anger kindles and burns. And therefore, the, the, the truth of the situation is exposed to Jonathan, and Jonathan continues to carry out the plan. Jonathan now has the information. He goes with the boy to the field. And I want us to consider the trust in this interaction. David has sent the son of the king to the king to find out if the king wants him dead. And so he would hope that, the, that Jonathan would keep his word and come back with the answer and help him to respond accordingly, whether to find safety or to flee because he's in danger. But this is the son of the king. This is the rightful heir to the throne in that culture. So what we see in these verses when Jonathan comes to the field is, first of all, he keeps his word through the shooting of the arrows, through the instructions that he gives to the boy. In fact, he adds some things in verse 38. He says, hurry, be quick, do not stay. He's conveying the urgency of the situation to David as the boy is there. But then notice what happens next in verse 40. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. Jonathan leaves himself defenseless to face David with the news that the king was out for his life. If the king was out for his life, that meant Jonathan was a potential enemy. And yet Jonathan comes without any weapon 
to defend himself should David, in fear for his life, want to strike him down. David has to trust him to come out and face him, and Jonathan has to trust him in order to lay him his weapons. But this devotion is an expression of what true friendship is, because what true friendship is, is love applied. And we see in verse 17 that the nature of their love for each other is love as for their own souls. Souls And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. How does Leviticus 19 tell us we're supposed to love our neighbors? What does Jesus say is the second greatest commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves? Jonathan's love for David is to seek David's good. To seek his well-being, to seek his encouragement, to seek his safety. And this is what he expects that David will do in return for him when he goes out to face him, when when he asks him to care for his family after him, that David will not only protect and spare his life as a perceived potential enemy, but also his children after him. There are many types of friendships. There are acquaintances, there are colleagues, there are people we know on our street. But this type of friendship, this true friendship that shows the love of God goes beyond seeking a buddy to chat with at work, someone to share music with or joke around with after school. This friendship is meant to reflect the love of God in being devoted to the good of the other. To say, not only do I like you, but I love you. And to love you is to seek your good. What is right beautiful and true for you and to pursue it for that person. And it's one thing to want such a friendship, to desire such a level of commitment and devotion, to want to have such a friend and to want to be such a friend, but it's another thing to actively pursue it. And if we want to pursue such friendships as an avenue of showing the love of God, the steadfast love that God has for us, that wants our good, what is right and true and beautiful for us. We need to acknowledge what this passage demonstrates, that such true friendship also comes with a cost. Jonathan and David are devoted to one another, but it comes at great cost, especially for Jonathan. It is one thing to proclaim brotherly love, to make pacts, to make promises. It is a wholly different thing to risk by putting those promises into practice. And as their plan plays out into the second day, as Jonathan gathers at the meal with Saul and others, Saul's hatred of David spills out and he turns against his own son. And this is where Jonathan bears some of the primary cost of his friendship with David. To bear the attack of the one opposed to his friend. This is Saul's son. This is his father. The head of his household. The king of the nation. Who is pouring out his anger and his revulsion upon Jonathan. And Jonathan is bearing that cost out of love for David. He bears insult and shame. As Saul calls him the son of a perverse woman. 
Notice he doesn't call him Jonathan. But just as Saul had referred to David as the son of Jesse, he'd stopped calling him Jesse, but in this passage calls him the son of Jesse. He's already distancing himself from David. So he distanced himself from his own son. He is rejected by his father. He is insulted and shamed. Saying not only are, should you be ashamed, but you're bringing shame on your mother for what you're doing. He then tries to induce him with greed. He says the kingdom will not belong to you as long as the son of Jesse is alive. And the implication is that you could have the kingdom. If you would just dispose of David, if you would bring him to me, then you could have the power then you could have the prestige. It's not just the wealth and the power of the kingdom, but it's his dignity. You could be great. You could be king. And so all of these possibilities are laid before him. Not only are there the negative costs of being insulted, rejected, and shamed, but but there's the, the giving up of what could be. To support David is to lose the kingdom. Perhaps what's hardest about this is that Saul gives him a chance. It might have been one thing if Saul berated him, attacked him, insulted him, rejected him, and this was just the consequences of of Jonathan's decision on David's behalf. But then Saul gives him a choice, and it's like he's twisting the dagger. You can still have the kingdom if you will go and bring him to me. Jonathan has to make the decision to commit himself to David all over again. It's as if he has to pay the cost for the second time. But he does. He knows the answer when he goes back. But he asks David what he has done wrong and for the question received... uh, Sorry, he knows the answer, but, but he asks Saul what David has done wrong and for the question receives a hurled spear for an answer. It nearly costs him not only his dignity, not only his prestige, not only wealth, but it almost costs him his life. Not every friendship requires such costs. But we need to entertain the possibility of such costs, to consider the potential costliness of, of a friendship in, in the image of what we see here between David and Jonathan. Because there is risk. Remember that, that Jonathan asks of David, show your steadfast love to me, that if I'm alive, that you will love me, and, and that you will not set yourself against my household. David, in saying yes to that, in agreeing to that, out of love for Jonathan, is putting himself at risk. Because if he does become king, who is the biggest threat to David's kingship? It's not the Philistines out there. It's the political intrigue of the displaced family members of Saul's line, Jonathan's children after him. And yet by committing to their well-being, he risks leaving in place those most likely to undermine and threaten him. The normal practice would have been to wipe out Jonathan's family because they would have been the most likely to try to usurp him. And yet David is risking that out of love for Jonathan. David and Jonathan demonstrate the self-sacrificial love necessary for true friendship. 
Not only do we seek the good for the other out of love, but we are willing to make costly choices to seek that good for them. This is so very often where our definition of friendship is tested. It's one thing to enjoy talking and hanging out, fishing together or shopping when we have the time, when we have the energy. It is another thing to risk rejection for them, to empty our checking accounts when tragedy strikes, to stay up all night talking through their problems and bearing their burdens. And sometimes it is that cost that helps us examine ourselves truly to see whether we love them as we love ourselves, whether we're truly devoted to their good or we're just devoted to the comfort or the enjoyment that they give us. One of the most challenging and costly things to a friendship at times can be to say something hard to the other. Because if we are devoted to them, we want what's best for them. We want them to be honoring the Lord. We want them to be safe. And so that at times means that we might need to tell them that they are wrong. That they're in danger, that they're in sin. And it is costly because you love them. And to, to say these things to them is to risk not only hurting their feelings, but is to risk the friendship if they don't respond right. Yet the question is there, is it the friendship Is it the security, stability, comfort of the friendship you love? Or is it the friend you love? Are you so devoted to their good that not only would you give them the shirt off your back, but you would also say, stop it and repent? If you have such a friend, whether it is a sibling, a spouse, or other, truly it is a gift from God. To have one who out of love for you would do that costly thing. As a family in Christ, we are meant to be those who express this type of true friendship to reflect the love of God that He has shown for us in Christ in paying the price of His Son's death on the cross for us. And so as a church, we need to ask ourselves, is the extent and health of our friendship at this church measured in how friendly we are on Sunday morning? Or is it in our willingness to encourage one another, to shoulder each other's burdens, and even at times confront one another when they're in danger? There's a beautiful picture of friendship between Jonathan and David. That's something that we would hope to aspire to, not just for the sake of the friendship, but to demonstrate the love of God for us. But how can we find How can we be such a friend? Is there hope for such a friendship? Or or is this picture just so far above and beyond us that all we can do is just say, that's nice for them. But I don't know if I can have that. How can we have hope for such true friendships? Consider some of the friendships that our culture holds up. We love a good buddy cop movie. We admire the friendship of Bilbo Baggins and Sam, uh, Sam, Sam, Samwise Ganji. Kids love the friendship of Ron, Harry, and Hermione in Harry Potter. What do all of those friendships share in common? They all come and are formed and are bound together around the shared purpose. The, the cops to put away the bad guys threatening the city so that they overcome their personality differences. 
Frodo and Sam, they, they need to take the ring to throw into Mount Doom. Ron, Harry, and Hermione are bound together to resist he who shall not be named. David and Jonathan share certain things in common, maybe their military prowess. But what allows them to be so deeply devoted? What allows them to make such costly sacrifices? It is a shared commitment to the purposes of the Lord. David has been described as a man after God's heart. Jonathan, when he pursued his father in chapter 19, argued on the basis of God's law about what was just and right in terms of trying to take David's life. He calls on God to hold him accountable to speak the truth here in verse 13. It is the Lord he is trusting to bless David. And it is love in keeping with the covenant love of God that he wants to express towards David in hopes that David will express to him. The basis, the hope that we can have to be such a friend is not to seek the friendship in and of itself, but to seek the things of God so that in recognizing the things of God, in pursuing the things of God, we might recognize the opportunity to enjoy such a friendship with someone else. It encourages us not to seek the friendship, but to seek the things of the Lord so that we can recognize and pursue friendships when the opportunity arises. But David's friendship with Jonathan, Jonathan's love of David, is not just in them coming together. It's also displayed in their departure. As they come and their hearts are grieved, as these grown men, these battle-hardened warriors, are described as falling on the ground and weeping. What does Jonathan say to David? Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. That, that they hoped that they could have, even as they were to part ways, only to see each other one more time as recorded in Scripture before Jonathan's death. They could let go of each other. They could send the one whom they loved away from the enjoyment of the other because they trusted the Lord to watch over them. Their love and trust in the Lord was the firm foundation that let them esteem each other so highly, give themselves to one another so sacrificially, and even remain bound together after they could no longer be with each other. At this point, you may be asking, am I saying that you can only have a devoted, sacrificial friendship with someone else who is a Christian? Or that Christians should have devoted friendships with only other Christians? No. Because to say that would be to deny the scriptural command to love our neighbors, even as Jesus encouraged us to love our enemies. But I am saying that it is God that gives us hope for every such friendship. Because it is God def who defines what is good in a friendship. It is God who empowers such a friendship. And it is God who grants hope when such a friendship fails. Let me unpack that. True friendship, as we've already discussed, can be costly. And if we're going to be willing to pay that cost, 
we need to determine, is this friendship right? Because sometimes it's not only a true friend who needs things from us, but there can be bad friends who demand our time and our energy and our attention, who want us to affirm them, who want us to encourage them, who, who want us to spend ourselves upon them. And we need to say, we need to have a standard by saying, is what we're expending on their behalf for their good? Or is it for their self-satisfaction? Is what I want from my friend for my good? Or am I making an idol of myself and asking them to worship me? What allows us to discern what we can ask and what we can give? It's not so much the amount, but to what end? That question should be, is it for their good? And thus to trust God as the maker of the world and the definer of the good gives us a basis for when to say yes and when to say no. For their good and ours as defined not by our immediate happiness, but by God's standards. Faith in the Lord looks to God's standard, but also to God's strength. What allows us to tie ourselves so closely to others, to give so richly, when our hope is in God's love for us, as Jonathan referenced to David, then we are looking to a God who provides and sustains, who not only instructs us in what is good and right for our friendship, but in a God who disciplines us when we veer off course. A God who gives us his word to instruct us what is right, who supplies our daily need so that we can give. And the one who promises that pouring ourselves out in sacrificial love will not leave us forever in debt, but that we have an eternal inheritance waiting for us. Lastly, hope for true friendship is found in the Lord because there are times when we are not good friends or our friends are not true friends to us. When we fail, we have a God that forgives and not only forgives, but by his word transforms that when you fail, that when you're an unfaithful friend, when you break a promise, when you're unwilling and you withhold something that a friend desperately needs for their good, is there hope? If there is a God who can change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh by the sending of his spirit, then there is hope that you can be a better friend. We can find forgiveness and restoration. And then when we experience that out of God's love for us, we can then offer it to friends who fail us. Yet for so many of us, who yearn for such friendships, who struggle with loneliness or have been deeply wounded by rejection, who wonder, I don't have friends like this and I don't know if I ever will. Hear the words of Jesus from John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And you might say, I don't have someone who's laid down their life for me. I don't have someone I know that I would lay down my life for. You do because Christ has done that for you. Because God's love for you was such, His devotion to your good was such that He was willing to pay the cost of His beloved Son. 
And so if God would love you so, as seen in the sacrifice of Jesus, to overcome your sins for the purpose of restoring you to relationship to him, then surely you can trust the words of Jesus when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, no matter what your earthly friends may do. This is the relationship. This is the friendship that God calls us into with him. And this is the relationship we get to reflect in our friendships to others. In 1918, a boy named Howard Loomis was abandoned by his mother at Father Flanagan's home for boys. It opened just a year before. Howard had polio and wore heavy leg braces. Walking was difficult for him, especially when he had to go up or down steps. Father Flanagan reflects back on one day when he asked Reuben Granger, an older boy who was one of the boys who carried this youngster up and down the steps if carrying Howard was hard. And Reuben replied, he ain't heavy, Father. He's my brother. That story has been reflected in songs. And that became the motto for Boys Town, which is what Father Flanagan's Home for Boys transformed into and continues to care for children in crisis. But that quote became their motto because what was seen in the love of that older boy for that younger boy in his willingness to view him who was not his brother as his brother. To sacrifice and bear his burdens as if he was his brother was the very thing that that home for the boys was meant to display. Just as that became a picture of the purpose of that home, so Jonathan and David's friendship becomes a picture of our purpose in Christ. It is a picture of deeply devoted love and the bearing of our burdens in the hope of the Lord who watched over Jonathan and David. In their friendship, we see what our friendships get to be. May we strive for such true and loving friendship, for in our love for one another, we become a picture of the love of God who loved us enough to shoulder the burdens of our sin upon His shoulders to carry us through sin that he might bear us into eternal hope. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love made manifest. If the beauty of the relationship between Jonathan and David can be so captivating, how much more so what it is merely a shadow of your unending covenant love for your people who you redeem. Dear God, help us to be mirrors and lenses in the way that we relate to one another that point to you. In Christ's name, amen.